Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And with today's journey through history, we're going to venture on over to Benton Harbor in the county of Berrien and look at some of the writings of James Pender, who published an account of some of the early days of Benton Harbor's history in 1915. And it is just a wonderful look and tribute to the early days of his own youth, as well as stories that he collected from many other publications during that time period to preserve some of the history of the early days of Benton Harbor. So come along and join me. This is going to be a fun and interesting one, looking back at forgotten stories of the early days in Benton Harbor. In his preface to his book, which was entitled History of Benton Harbor and Tales of Village Days, he writes, It is true of all of us after we have passed our youthful days to pause occasionally in life's endeavors and look backward in mental review to the scenes and events of past activities. We are prone to think fondly and speak enthusiastically of old-time associates and former deeds of frolic or achievement. Each generation, in his time, cherishes the same sentiments because youthful impressions rarely ever fade from the memory. The manuscript of this book was prepared from time to time during the greater part of the year 1914 as the opportunity from toil for a livelihood afforded. The title first chosen was Old Times in Benton Harbor, and as historical events are interwoven with the stories, the present title seems more appropriate. The narrative begins from the time the writer, James Pender, at the age of five years old, arrived in Benton Harbor, sailing on a vessel from Chicago. And it's continued over a period of 30 years, or until the village changed its old-fashioned garb for a new dress, the city charter. So this is um, just the introduction part of the book, and I'm going to read you some of the chapters and just to give you an idea of some of the history of the early days of Benton Harbor. Just to have some historical context, Benton Harbor was organized as a village in 1837, and the history of this story begins in the summer of 1863. At that time, the town and the canal were new, and there were groups of men standing around the corners of the streets each day talking in pleasant tones about the bright prospects of the town. Every new arrival in the village, young or old, would soon become imbued with the spirit so prevalent in the community, a good-natured unity of sentiment and a combined ambition to put the shoulder to the wheel of local progress. This unity of local sentiment was considerably strengthened by the well-displayed hostility of the older town across the river. There was rivalry and enmity between the people of St. Joseph and the people of the enterprising new village at the terminus of the canal. Some of the St. Joseph people called the place Bungtown with as much satisfaction as if that name were a hoodoo that would keep the new town in the backwoods eternally. The name Bungtown did no harm to the vigorous little village. On the contrary, this nickname was a source of merriment among the local people long after the older community had ceased to use it. 
Not another village, perhaps, in all the world ever possessed more interesting features than did Bungtown. There was the new canal, which the local people viewed with much pride, especially whenever a sailing vessel came in from Lake Michigan by way of the St. Joseph River and glided up the new waterway. These vessels were usually laden with merchandise for the stores of the new town, and some of them brought in great loads of staves and shingles. At times, there would be no craft of any kind in the canal. During these intervals, large flocks of wild ducks took full possession of the new waterway. The boys of the village who knew how to swim used the basin of the canal for a swimming pool. In the summer days, boys' heads could be seen bobbing in the water. The diving-in place was off of Robin's Dock. There were some expert swimmers. A bird now almost unknown was numerous and popular in the early days of the village. What has become of the martin birds? is a query many people who have dwelt here then have asked in later years. The martin birds lived close to the people. All the store buildings were two-story frames with projecting cornices fronting Main Street. The martin birds built their nest in the crevices of these cornices. In the evening, at about sunset, these birds displayed unusual activity flying around and singing in concert. They were so much loved by the people that boys were told not to throw stones at them, nor make them targets for their bows and arrows. The correct name of the bird is the Purple Martin. Their song was a sweet, plaintive twittering. The village school was located on the same lot where the central school building now stands. The schoolhouse was a small frame building heated in winter by a large box stove in the center of the room. William Hess was the schoolmaster. He was of such a plain, genial disposition and so popular that he became the victim of a nickname. He was known only as Billy Hess. It gave considerable amusement to humorously inclined gents of the town to question youngsters as follows. Do you go to school? Yes, sir. Who's your teacher? Billy Hess. Mr. Hess, after a few terms of teaching, retired from the school and took up carpenter work, his regular trade, which he followed in Benton Harbor for many years. He was succeeded in the school by John C. Lawrence. The latter soon became Benton Harbor's most popular schoolmaster in the early days of the village. John C. Lawrence is due credit for placing Benton Harbor schools upon a practical working basis. The school was graded into first and second grades, and as the building was too small to accommodate all the pupils, another schoolhouse of similar construction was erected. In the new building, the younger children, or juniors, were taught the alphabet, primer, and first reader by a woman teacher. The flowers on Brunson's Hill were a delight to the school children, as well as an ornament to that part of town. The hillside fronting on Pipestone Street was covered with roses of all varieties. The highly perfumed pinks were grown there in great profusion. Stern Brunson's large white house stood upon the crest of the hill. There was a giant swing made of poles suspended from the limb of a large oak tree. The school children were frequently invited by members of the Brunson family to go up the hillside path between the pinks and enjoy a swing. 
The Brunson's family were esteemed in those days somewhat like General Washington and his household are pictured in early colonial days. Stern Brunson was looked up to as the founder of Benton Harbor in about the same way as George Washington is regarded as the, as the father of his country. Brunson Harbor was the original name of the town. The change to Benton Harbor did not meet with the approval of the people generally. The town was called Brunson Harbor long after the change of the name had been made, and it was not until a newspaper was established in 1868 that the name Benton Harbor became popular. Mr. J.E. Miller, in his Reminiscence, which is published in this book, says it was voted in 1866 to change the name to Benton Harbor because it was the most important town in the country and township of Benton. When the peach orchards began to bear fruit in large quantities, steamboats were employed to transport the fruit to Chicago. Five steamboats came up the canal daily to receive their loads of the luscious fruit. One of these steamboats, the Hippocampus, was lost on the night of September 8, 1868. The boat was heavily laden with peaches and capsized in a squall when about half the distance to Chicago. The loss of the boat caused much sorrow among the people of the growing little town. The loss of life was shocking. Among the lost was Alvin Burridge, the leading local boot and shoe dealer. Al Palmer, another one of the lost, was also universally mourned. The Palmers owned a general store on East Main Street. The firm consisted of the senior Palmer and his three sons, Al, Theodore, and Frank. Al was on a trip to purchase a new stock of goods for the store. It was rumored among his friends that he had a roll of bills in his pocket amounting to upward of $5,000. He went down with the boat and did not even make an attempt to get out of his stateroom. He just spun round and around, said an eyewitness, and seemed to be so excited or bewildered to get to the door before the sinking hippocampus made her last lurch and went down. All on board was supposed to have been lost. No survivors of the wreck could be found by passing boats or searching expeditions sent out from Chicago. There was universal mourning in Benton Harbor and St. Joseph. On the day the following of the sinking of the hippocampus, the weather was foggy, and some people hoped that there would be relatives and friends found clinging to driftwood when the fog lifted. On Friday morning, September 11th, the tug Minter of Sagatuck steamed into St. Joseph Harbor with 17 survivors of the lost steamer on board. They had been picked up out of the sea by the schooner trio Captain Johnson, who found them floating upon a raft-like piece of the upper cabin of the lost hippocampus. The trio then headed for Sagatuck, where the survivors were landed. They had been in the water and without food for 38 hours when rescued by the trio. The lost number on board of the hippocampus was 43, lost 26, saved 17. Of the boat's crew that were saved, Captain Henry W. Brown, Clerk Charles P. Bloom, Wheelsman Charles Morrison, and Charles Russell, who was a steward, Cyrus Rittenhouse, and six deckhands. The six passengers that were saved was, was Edward N. Hatch, James Trimble, Joseph Rifford, V. Daly, Joseph Cooley, and George Fuller. The statements of the survivors were interesting. They are reprinted here and are copied from the Chicago Tribune of that date.
The first statement was of Edward N. Hatch. While I was struggling in the water, some persons caught hold of me. I tried to kick them loose, but we both went down together. While under the water, he let go and I came up. I took in much water while going down. I remember wondering how far it was to the bottom of the lake. It seemed as if I was 40 feet under. On rising again, I came under a spar of the steamer and caught hold of the rigging. I saw my friend tremble upon the other side of the spar. He hailed me and told me to come to him. I did so and found the captain and wheelsman Morrison with him. Finally, we picked up others until we had 11 on the raft. The sea was running high, darkness set in, there was thunder and lightning during the day, and it had rained hard. We now felt gloomy and discouraged. Mr. Rifford, an old gentleman of Benton Harbor, cheered us, and at the request of Captain Brown, prayed for our deliverance. While praying, all sat as quietly as possible. After prayer, all promised to be better men and Christians if they reached shore, and we were exhorted by this by Rifford. Statement of Cyrus Rittenhouse, steward of the Hippocampus. As soon as we left St. Joseph, Monday evening, September 7th, I turned into my berth and knew nothing of what transpired until about two minutes before we went down. The listing of the boat and shifting of cargo wakened me. I rushed out of my room, partly dressed, and when I came out of the cabin, she was going down stern first, partly on her side. Passengers were screaming, Oh my God, what shall I do? What shall I do? By this time, the cabin had struck water and broke loose from the boat, so I sprang into the water. I made for a door, went under, turned up, and caught the door. A passenger just then came on my back, caught me by the throat, and choked me off the door. I said, Oh my God, if you won't choke me, you can have the door. He let go, and I went down. As I came up again, I got tangled in some floating twine, went down again, and on coming up, caught hold of the cabin on which was John Brown, the clerk, and a colored man named Johnson. Crept onto that, and finding it would not maintain all of us, jumped off and swam to the hurricane deck about 15 feet off. I think there were three men on it. One of them drew me upon it. I now saw Captain Brown and Wheelsman Morrison floating on the side of the cabin. They floated to us, and we helped them onto our raft. It soon became very foggy. The wind was blowing hard and the sea rolling high so that we could hardly keep on the raft. We all felt nearly discouraged. Mr. Rifford, at the request of Captain Brown, offered a prayer on our behalf in which all responded with a hearty amen. About four o'clock Wednesday morning, we saw the light of a vessel and this one, to our great joy, was coming towards us. We had been passed unseen by three vessels before this. We signaled with the tablecloth which Captain Brown had picked up and waved our arms and hallooed. In a few minutes, we were overjoyed to see that she had discovered us. We were picked up and taken to Saugatuck. The vessel that saved us was the trio. Joseph Rifford, one of the survivors of the lost hippocampus, was what was then called an old man, but his age was no handicap in his ability to take care of himself. In this dangerous situation, he calmly took a chair from his stateroom and leaped aboard with it. After floating the balance of the night astride of the chair, he was picked up at dawn by the men on the raft. Captain John Morrison was the regular captain of the hippocampus. He had been ill a few days and on the night of September 7th yielded his position to Captain Brown. The latter and members of the crew denied the boat was overloaded. 
Captain Brown stated that the foundering of the hippocampus was a mystery to him. The boat, he said, had carried heavier loads. A few minutes before the disaster, the captain, accompanied by wheelsman Morrison, went below to see if the boat was taking in water. They found everything secure. A few minutes later, the hippocampus careened on her side in the heavy rolling seas and went down stern first. Captain Brown stated that the number of packages of peaches on the board was 7,001 baskets and boxes. The hippocampus was comparatively new as a boat, having been built only two years before the disaster. The boat was a screw propeller and measured 82 feet keel, or 94 feet overall. Breadth of beam, 17 feet, and depth of hold, 8 feet. Curtis Bowton, Alan Brunson, and Captain Morrison were the owners. So that concludes the first chapter of the book on the history of Benton Harbor and Tales of Village Days. I'm going to read you chapter 2, and then we'll conclude this episode. You'll have to let me know if you want to hear more, but this is a very fascinating inside history of the loss of the hippocampus that I have not seen anywhere else. So I thought this was very interesting. So he continues with, Fortunes were made in peaches. Orchards in Bering were valued at about $1,000 per acre. The largest orchard in this region at that time was the one known as the Cincinnati Peach Orchard. It comprised about 100 acres of peach trees of all varieties early and late. The orchard was located on Morton Hill in the east and northeast part of that district. It was owned by a Cincinnati syndicate who no doubt reaped a fortune from its bountiful supply of peaches. The entire orchard was later destroyed by the yellows. The Cincinnati Peach Orchard was one of the many wonders of the newly discovered fruit belt. Its name was mentioned in the newspapers of Chicago and the eastern cities. Visitors or newcomers to this region would usually go out to look at it and to sample its different kinds of peaches. The orchard was cut down in 1877 after the Yellows Commission had discovered the presence of the disease, which was then attacking the orchards. The loading of five steamboats nightly with peaches gave employment to all who could be pressed into service. Men and boys employed in the basket factories could put in three or four hours each evening on the docks at 30 cents per hour. The extra money earned in this way then added to the regular daily earnings amounted to from $3.50 to $5 per day for the workmen. Many of these money earners were boys not over 15 years of age. The merchants in business here before and after the village was incorporated were Alvin Burridge, Boots and Shoes, E.G. Reynolds, Dry Goods, P.M. Kinney, Groceries, C.S. Boyle, Meat Market, John Thomas, Boots and Shoes, Thomas Spears, a tailor, Gates and Bell, a drugstore, David Allison, Flower and Seed, Captain Robbins, a general store, Palmer and Sons, a general store, Peter Hansen, a tailor, Dodge Reed and John A. Scott, a shoe shop, Henry Petrie, harness store, Old Holbert Bakery, William Gates, Dry Goods, Albert Bakshi and Brother, Wagon Shop, and John Bell conducted a blacksmith shop on Pipestone Street, as did also Soul Woods. Calvin Colgrove made wagons in the lower room of his two-story house, which was located in the rear of a lot fronting on Elm Street. John Morrison was a popular landlord of a boarding house, grocery store, and saloon on Main Street. William Dunnigan 
was an innkeeper on the corner of Main Street and Colfax Avenue. He was the original ice dealer and being the first to employ men to cut ice and store it for the public use in the summer months. James Trimble owned a boarding house and saloon on Main Street near where the Hotel Benton now stands. There were other saloons and inns where the weary traveler coming in by stagecoach found a comfortable refuge. The American House, the only hotel in the village, a large frame structure, stood on the corner of Main and Pipestone Streets, where the Jones and Summer block now stands. At that time, the hotel was managed by a family of the name of Dodge. This hotel, which was frequently called the Tavern, was later owned and managed by E. Nichols and family. Under the management of Mr. Nichols, the American House was very popular with the town folks as well as with the traveling public. Later, the American House was managed by Alonzo Vincent. He was a popular landlord. The post office was located on East Main Street in a small store building. Henry C. Morton, one of the most energetic founders of the village, was the postmaster. The mail was brought in by stagecoach. On days when the stagecoach failed to come in, a horseback rider would be employed to bring the mail over from St. Joseph. Stanley Morton often did this duty when a boy and while his father was postmaster. It is remembered that one day a mail carrier came galloping into town and reported that two desperate-looking men attempted to hold him up near the bridge for the purpose of robbing the mailbag. He whipped up his horse, which was a spirited one, and made a record trip from the bridge to the Benton Harbor Post Office. The east end of the bridge was considered a dangerous locality for travelers on the lonely road between the towns. The dry goods store of William Gates was a popular place to trade, owing no doubt to the handsome and obliging young people who clerked there. They were Miss Susie Gates, the daughter of the proprietor, and Andrew J. Kidd, a young man who became popular from the first day of his arrival in the new town. The romance of this couple would make an interesting story if written by someone who has talent for that class of writing. When their engagement was announced, the girls of the village belled them, going from door to door, ringing a bell and announcing Andrew Kidd and Susie Gates. The Congregational Church stood in a vacant part of town, East Main Street, below Hunter's Hill. It was there that the marriage of Andrew J. Kidd and Susan Gates was solemnized. It was the most elaborate social event in the history of Benton Harbor up to that date. There were many aftermath incidents of the Great Civil War in those days in Benton Harbor. When the soldiers returned from the battlefields of the South, some of them continued to wear their blue uniforms for years afterwards. There was a family named Petrie who owned the house and, and lots on Michigan Street owned by John Scott and now owned and occupied by Dennis O'Brien and family. On Petrie's veranda, a parrot occupied a cage. Whenever the parrot could get a glimpse of a man in a soldier's blue uniform, it would sing out, Hurrah for Grant! Hurrah for Grant! General Grant was the popular hero of the day, and this parrot's enthusiasm for him was a delight to all who heard it. In 1872, S.G. Ansingdale and Company were selling groceries, H.L. Pritchard and Company dry goods, M.G. Lamport Hardware, Conger and Hutchinson, Boots and Shoes, Brunson and Johnson Hardware. The local physicians were Drs. Johns and George Bell, Dr. I.R. Dunning, and Dr. Richard Winans. 
George Tolles was Justice of the Peace, and A.B. Rifford was an attorney. The ague, or chills and fever, was a prevalent disease in the summer months. The cause of this was the newness of the country in the great area of marshlands on two sides of the village. Very few, if any, of the people could escape this disease. He's got the ague was a common expression. When a victim began shaking with chills, the doctor would be called and quinine was the remedy used. If there was a delay in calling the physician, the patient's condition would change from chills to a nerve-wracking and head-splitting fever. The sufferings of the villagers from ague became so common that it was considered an everyday humorous incident to see fellow creatures shaking so strenuously that everything movable in the city vicinity was set in motion. Occasionally, the buildings shook where one or more people were down with the ague. After one day's sickness, the ague would pass away if quinine had been taken, and the victim of its attack would then feel about as good as ever. Some of the ague victims were subject to regular every-other-day attacks. A great amount of quinine was consumed in combating this disease. It sounds like it was a form of malaria or some kind. And I have seen references to the fever and ague in other southwest Michigan cities during this same time period. And he goes on, the styles of clothing worn were very different from modern fashions. All men and boys wore boots with high leggings. The pants from the knee downward were usually worn inside of the boot leggings. The boys' boots were ornamented with a strip of copper over the toe tips. The women wore long, loose-fitting dresses, which were made to look larger by the use of hoop skirts. The hair was worn in coils on the back of the head, held in position with hair nets. Some of the girls with curls let their hair down about the shoulders. Horse racing was a popular sport. On Saturday afternoons, farmers with good horses would gather in town and talk racing. A conspicuous character in this sport was Thad Drew, a well-to-do farmer and as reckless a looking man as could be found anywhere, not excepting the Badlands. Thad would go from one saloon to another, treating his followers to anything but soft drinks and boasting about his good horses. When someone in an opposition crowd displayed courage enough to challenge him to a race, Thad would create a circus entertainment in the street. He would bluster around expressing contempt for his challenger. You haven't got a hoss that can run. Look at that hoss of mine. He can beat any hoss that ever wore a shoe or went barefoot. Thad would then take a large chew of tobacco and continue as follows. Anyone as wants to race with my hoss, let him come forward and put up his money. I've got money to prove that that, that hoss can show daylight. Here, Thad would laugh a sort of chuckle and an expectorant tobacco juice. Yes, show daylight in a large streak at that between him and your nag, and I don't care what kind of horse it is or where he comes from. The opposition replied, I'll bet you $10 my horse can leave yours behind in a run of 40 rods. 
And then Thad would roar, $10? Shucks, make it $25. And my hoss don't engage in little runs of 40 rods. It's 80 rods or nothing. The opposition would then show symptoms of backing out. This would be just what Thad wanted, for in reality, he was more of a blustering joker than the owner of great racers. The race course was on Colfax Avenue, then called the Heath's Corner Road, from a line somewhere near Empire Avenue to Britain Avenue. When no race for money could be arranged, Thad drew and a crowd would go up to the race course where a race between Thad's own horses would be run for the entertainment of the spectators. On Saturday afternoon in town, while an argument on racing was furnishing entertainment for a large crowd, a young man, James McCormick, climbed into a wagon and made a speech as follows. Gentlemen, I want to see a race, and I am sure all here want to see a race. Now, the only thing that's preventing a race is the disagreement about the distance. Thad Drew wants 80 rods, and the opposition as stubbornly sticks for 40 rods. Now, why not split the difference and call it 60 rods? The speech was received with cheers from the crowd. It seemed to throw new light upon a deadlocked situation. Thad Drew and the opposition agreed to a race of 60 rods. The money was put up and all interested hiked to the race course. An interesting race followed. The horses were ridden by youths of both clans. The opposition horse took the lead at the start but was overtaken and passed by Thad's racer. Again, the opposition horse went to the front and passed his rival, crossing the line a length ahead of time. As a balm for his defeat, Thad Drew took another chew of tobacco, then challenged his rival to a race at 80 rods. The latter replied that he never ran his horse that far only when after Redskins or Johnnies. And that was the end of that story. And that concludes this episode on the history of Benton Harbor and Tales of Village Days, which covered everything from the early merchants and pioneers to the uh, mail routes running from rustlers to the wreck of the hippocampus and horse racing and the greatest social gathering wedding of the time period up to that date in history. So it sounds like there is a lot of amazing stories in this collection of tales, and I'll probably do some further episodes reading some other chapters from this uh, great book uh, because I just found it very fun and fascinating to go through these little anecdotes and stories with the detail that the author put in in these recollections of the early days of Benton Harbor. So if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave a rating or review on whatever app that you are listening on. And be sure to visit my website, michaeldelaware.com. If you'd like to reach out to me or contact me, you can also pre-order my upcoming book, Victorian Southwest Michigan True Crime, which is coming out on March 11th. And you can find out details about the book there. And pre-order is now available for the book. So if you haven't done so, please do so. Or you can also check out my calendar on the website and put it on your own calendar of one of the upcoming book signings that I am going to be doing in March, April, and May. And come out and see me and you can get a, buy a signed copy of the book there as well. And if you're on Facebook, you can find me at Michael Delaware Author. Be sure to follow me there for further updates on upcoming events. And if you're on Instagram, you can find me at Michigan History Guy. And as always, I encourage you to check out the local museums in your area. So if you want to know more about Benton Harbor, seek out the local 
historical museums and historical societies in your area. Benton Harbor is probably under the umbrella of the Berrien County Historical Society, as well as other organizations. There's a lot of different historical societies and museums and people that preserve history in local communities. So be sure to seek them out and find out more information about the local communities that you live in or are interested in finding more fascinating tales from. And as always, until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening.